on this week's Wealth Track Investment Lessons from a Great Investor. In a rare interview, T. Rowe Price's Brian Rogers shares 35 years of experience, 30 at the helm of the award-winning Equity Income Fund. Next on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective, Rosalind P. Walter, and the Fairholme Foundation. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to interview some of the most successful investors in the business, including Warren Buffett. They are all quite different, but they definitely share some personality traits. I was reminded of one of them when interviewing this week's guest and when reading Mr. Buffett's most recent letter to shareholders. One common characteristic is optimism. The 86-year-old Buffett has it in spades. If anything, he seems to be getting more upbeat with age. Here's what he says about the investment environment in America. Our efforts to materially increase the normalized earnings of Berkshire will be aided as they have been throughout our managerial tenure by America's economic dynamism. One word sums up our country's achievements, miraculous. From a standing start 240 years ago, a span of time less than triple my days on Earth, Americans have combined human ingenuity, a market system, a tide of talented and ambitious immigrants, and the rule of law to deliver abundance beyond any dreams of our forefathers. He goes on to say, above all, it's our market system, an economic traffic cop ably directing capital, brains, and labor that has created America's abundance. Yes, the buildup of wealth will be interrupted for short periods from time to time. It will not, however, be stopped. I'll repeat what I've both said in the past and expect to say in future years. Babies born in America today are the luckiest crop in history. Well, no one alive, at least that we know of, has matched Buffett's 50-plus year investment returns, but this week's guest has racked up an impressive 30-year record with less than market risk, as well as shepherding a highly respected investment firm safely through some turbulent times, including the financial crisis. He is Brian Rogers, now non-executive chairman of the board of T. Rowe Price, a firm he joined as a portfolio manager in 1982. Until recently, he was the firm's chairman and chief investment officer. In 2015, 30 years after launching the award-winning T. Rowe Price Equity Income Fund, he handed the reins over to a co-portfolio manager. During his tenure, its 10.7% annualized returns just about matched the S&P 500's 10.8% performance, but it did so with less volatility than the market, offering more protection during market declines. Over the past 20 years and under his leadership, 85% of the firm's funds outperformed their benchmarks over multiple rolling five- and ten-year periods. Now, Rogers is a regular member of the prestigious Barron's Annual Investment Roundtable and was recently recruited to join the board overseeing Harvard's endowment, as he puts it, helping out the university where he received his undergraduate and business degrees. 
I asked Rogers to share some of the most important lessons learned from 35 years of managing money and building a firm. We started with being an optimist. Well, as an investor, Consuelo, you want to, you want to think about the future. Uh, you have to appreciate that the long-term trend of economic growth is upward. Uh, there are 7 billion people in the world, more or less. They all want a better life for themselves and their children. And the progress of economies generally is from south to north over the long term. And there are many interruptions along the way. But being optimistic about the future is one of, the, I think, the, the basic ground rules for being an equity investor. You have to have confidence in the future. You have to assume a company will be able to grow. If you invest in the company, you'll benefit from that growth. And that's why I always feel like investors have to be optimists. So through, you know, the 30 years that you're running the equity income fund, I mean, there were some, you know, major crises. I mean, one of them being the financial crises of eight years ago. And how do you apply that optimism during periods when everyone feels around you feels that the world is falling apart? Well, you try not to panic in the, in the short term. And over any 30 or 35 year period, there are a lot of ups and downs. Right. And in the heat of the moment, uh, the, in, the, in the heat of 2008, the one thing I always like to look back on and dust off, if you will, uh, was Jeremy Siegel's book, Stocks for the Long Run. Yes. Because that gives you that long-term perspective uh, that is really crucial for an investor to, uh, to buy into. Now, he's been criticized a lot for that you know, book since then, because obviously there have been periods when stocks for the long run didn't pay off in a five, six, seven, even a 10-year period. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in our relatively short lifetimes, uh, you know, h- how do you handle those periods when actually stocks don't do well? Well, we had the so-called lost decade from right. 2000 to maybe 2010, right. if you will. Uh, and think what happened in that period. You had the dot-com bubble and crash. You had the biggest financial crisis since the Great Depression. And you basically broke even. And so if you can have two serious periods such as those and still break even, um, that's probably speaks to having a good long-term case. Okay. Um, And so you have to think longer term even when the days are dark. So, Brian, speaking of optimism, looking back at your track record at the equity income fund, 10.7% annualized returns, terrific track record. A lot of pros on Wall Street are saying don't expect those returns in the future. What is your view? Well, I think um, the future is a long period of time, obviously. Right. I, I think over the next several years, I don't think investors will make 10.7% a year, whatever the number is. Um, we're starting um, in early 2017 from an elevated level of valuation. Um, it's likely short-term interest rates and intermediate-term interest rates move up um, over the next year or two, thus compressing the levels of market valuation. And I think investors probably ought to be happy if they earn 6 to 8% a year for the next, the next five years. The long-term rate of return from investing in equities is between 10 and 11 percent, but coming from current valuation levels, returns tend to be less robust. Which leads me to another lesson that you've uh, learned, and that is that everything is cyclical. And so explain in retrospect why you can take advantage of cyclicality and that, in fact, the crises are opportunities. It's a very contrarian point of view. Mm -hmm. Well, I've always been a contrarian investor, maybe a contrarian person. Um, So when you look long term at the pace, at the the rate of growth in the the economy globally, um, it tends to follow a wave-like pattern. Now, interestingly, since 2009, we've been in a period of positive economic growth, albeit sluggish economic growth. So today begs the question, where are we right now in the, right. Con- in the context of long-term cyclicality? And we're probably approaching a period of economic maturity. So maybe the next cyclical move at some point is going to be downward. Uh, in periods of economic crisis, usually they coincide with periods of market crisis. 
And that's oftentimes when you want to tighten your belt and, and make investment decisions on the, on the buy side. Um, acknowledging that in the, over the long term, that positive rate of economic growth will resume at some point. Um, and even in the darkest days of, of, of uh, 1981, 82, and 1991, and 2001, 2002, obviously 2008, 2009, you could almost always make a going concern assumption that the economy at some point would snap back. All the policymakers work to do it, uh, our political leaders, our central bankers, uh, our business leaders, and so you know there will always be a rebound whenever there's a downturn. But right now we're kind of at the, as you said, where it's a mature economy. We've had an eight-year bull market. I mean, another lesson that you've learned as well is that price matters a lot, that uh, you've written that it's a determinant of investment success. Well, it's probably not a time to be aggressively bullish. Um, a lot of changes going on in Washington, a lot of policy implications, a lot of economic implications of the new administration. Um, from a valuation standpoint, let's look around markets. Money market funds yielding one-ish percent. The 10-year Treasury yielding two and a half percent. Dividend yield on the S&P 500 about two percent. What will the growth rate in that dividend be over the next five or ten years? So I, my suspicion is we're in for a period of relatively low rates of return across asset classes. Um, money market assets will be safe but low yielding. Um, the credit markets have been in a 35-year bull market, more right. or less. And in my view, it's highly likely that the next five or 10 years is going to be more challenging for fixed income assets. With rising rates, what does that mean for market multiples from a P.E. price-earnings ratio standpoint? Mm -hmm. And so that's why I feel like the upside potential from the equity market is more subdued than it's been traditionally. And investors face the, the challenge of being satisfied with earning maybe 6 7 or 8% a year as opposed to 10 12 15% a year like has been the case over various periods in time. So we're in a, a low inflation, low return um, era is, my, is my, my hunch. So still low inflation, low return. I mean, people are very excited about uh, the Trump agenda. They're likening it to the Reagan era. What, what, are, what is your take on, on that interpretation of where we are? Well, I think the easy part was winning the election and the inauguration. Uh, now comes the hard part, um, getting a series of legislative um, policies approved in Congress, mm -hmm. tax reform, corporate tax reform, repatriation, an infrastructure bill. Uh, we're going to have to wait and see what all this means. And I think investors are, have, have been very um, positively inclined since the election. And it's, it's harder to do than it is to talk about. Which leads me to an, another lesson learned, which is that you've said investment humility is important, that it's important for investors to be humble, and that, uh, that overconfidence is an investor's greatest challenge. Why is, why is that? Well, I, I think when investors are overconfident about an asset class or a, a given security, um, they, or a market. Or a market. They are willing to pay more for it. They, right. uh, the, their analysis tends to be a little less rigorous. Um, I, I think um, I always tell our younger investors that we don't know as much as we think we know. Uh, because when you come out of graduate school and you hit your ground running on Wall Street, you think you know everything. And uh, being overconfident is really the enemy of good investment returns over the long term. How have you protected yourself against becoming overconfident? Or, I mean, have you made mistakes along the way that, that have, has taught you, you know, Brian? Consuelo, we don't have enough time to talk about all of my <laughs> mistakes. Uh, but I, I think um, observing people making investment errors when you're young um, really leaves an indelible mark on you. And whether you do it yourself or you observe others, um, I, I think a thorough reading of, of economic history um, grounds you and prevents you from becoming a little too overconfident. Um, reading about others' mistakes 
Um, every day in the Wall Street Journal is a new story about, uh, about a fund or a small company or something else that's getting into trouble. And you learn a lot from that. You learn a lot from watching the mistakes of others and hopefully you learn more from their mistakes than from your own. So what's interesting is that, that you describe yourself as an optimist, you know, which you are as an investor, but there is a, a cube on your desk uh, that evidently says, doubt everything, believe nothing. That sounds very cynical to me. I, I think investors get into trouble sometimes when they, um, they hear an investment story, an investment case, and they just buy it hook, line, and sinker. Right. Uh, that specific uh, item on my desk is because one time the, the CEO of a utility company came into our office and said, our dividend is 100% safe. And three months later, the company cut its dividend. So doubt everything, believe nothing. Right. Be skeptical when you hear uh, very bullish arguments and cases. And be a little bit wary of a very um, flamboyant, very compelling stories. Which is an, another one of your lessons learned. You just say avoid the it stocks, kind of the, you know, the cult investments. That's along those same lines. If, if there is an it stock, if there is a cult investment, then your guard should be up. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think anything, any company that gets too much publicity, mm -hmm. um, that is always on the front page, um, you have to be a little bit wary about that. The, the, the woman who coined the frame It Stock was talking about Enron mm -hmm. 15, 15, 18 years ago. Right. And it was the It Stock. You had to own it. Everybody believed it. Everybody was overweighted in it. Um, everybody wrote positively about it. And look what happened. And there are always examples of that in markets, both in equity markets and also in fixed income and other markets, commodities markets. Um, in, in today, it doesn't feel as though we have any specific cases of irrational exuberance. It's just more that the overall market is expensive. Right. I would have said two years ago, the, the biotech sector, there was a lot of crazy stuff going on there. And the investor would have been well served to, to look at all of that frenzy and take a step back. What about the FANG stocks? So, you know, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, which actually dominated the market um, in 2015. 15. They, they right. sold off a little bit last year. They right. weren't, um, I mean, is that kind of a, a craze? Th those, those handful of companies are doing very well fundamentally. Okay. Um, the question the investor has to ask is how much is priced in? I mean, we all use Amazon. We all love Amazon. We're probably all on Facebook. I'm a relatively new Facebook user. Um, but you have to ask yourself, what is the valuation the company's selling at and what assumptions are built into um, its earnings outlook? And in some cases, you, you can make an argument that some of those companies are extended valuation-wise. Do you want to make the argument? I, mean uh, I, I would say they're, they're somewhat expensive. Right. At the same time, when fundamental earnings performance is strong or fundamental revenue performance in the case of some of the companies without earnings, um, they're gaining share, um, they're, you know, they're, they're doing very well fundamentally, so you want to be a little bit careful um, one of my friends was a Wall Street strategist, and he, he often talked about how he had five generations of friends and hedge funds who lost their careers shorting Amazon. So when a company is doing well fundamentally, even if right. it's expensive, you don't necessarily want to make an extreme statement against it or extreme bet against it. Brian, as a, as a value investor, a contrarian investor, are there some stocks like an Amazon, for instance, or a Facebook or a Google that are so dominant that, that we all should own in our portfolios? I mean, is there a compelling case to be made that there are just some stocks that companies that look like, you know, you should own them even though they're not a great value now or they're not a contrarian bet? Yeah, I, I think there are very few companies, because I would say you, one holds forever. Right. Um, when I look at my career over uh, 30 years, um, my money management money career management, over 30 right. years, um, there were probably three or four out of a hundred yeah. 
at the end that is heroin at the beginning. Right. Did you know that going in? I mean, no, did I didn't you know recognize... that going in. I mean, one would have been the um, uh, one was Exxon. Right. Which you own for for, for forever. Years. One right. was basically the um, predecessor company of J.P. Morgan, which you can all trace back to commercial credit mm-hmm. in Baltimore mm-hmm. back in 1985, 86. Johnson and Johnson, because you, I had actually well, asked you about this. Yeah, Johnson and Johnson was probably the other one. Had. And again, that's equity income fund. Those are cons- dividend payers. They and so th- that was a classic, uh, you know, the kind of companies that you wanted to own in the equity income fund. They represented that. The, because- the perfect investment for us, Consuelo, was always a company whose stock price goes up, obviously, right? Whose dividend goes up at at least the same pace. Therefore, their dividend yield stays exactly the same, just at right. a higher price with a right. higher dividend. And that was always the perfect series of investments. But but that's a relatively small number out of hypothetically 100 holdings in the equity income fund. Yeah. So that's why I say there are very few companies you can buy and hold forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Warren Buffett would say maybe, what, Coca-Cola might have been one or whatever, mm-hmm. but uh, there are very few companies that fit that bill. Um, active versus passive debate. It seems like we've reached a critical uh, turning point where, uh, you know, passive has really taken off, and in a low-return environment, people are looking very closely at fees uh, you know, has passive won that debate? Well, I think passive has won the fee debate. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. Right. Necess- it not- hasn't necessarily won the performance debate. Right. I-, I think when I think back to 1982 when I joined Tierra Price, the share of passive in term- total U.S. mutual fund assets was probably single-digit percent. Right. Now it's probably a third. And growing rapidly. Huge growth. Growing right. very rapidly over the last couple of right. years. Um, the more money that's invested passively, the better skilled active investors can do. Because as correlations rise and the same money pours into an index, right. um, uh, specifically the S&P 500, um, the opportunities to cherry pick and excel will increase over time. Mm-hmm. And probably one of the most fertile areas would be S&P companies 501 to 1000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, arguing if all of the money is flowing into the S&P 500, from plain old passive funds, passive mutual funds, passive ETFs, um, arguably, that sector or that that part of the marketplace, which is very large, uh, will be valued much more highly than it might otherwise be, and there might be arbitrage opportunities to mm-hmm. invest elsewhere. Um, active management is really hard, and we've done a lot of work looking at our company. Right. And we think we've done it very well over time. Mm-hmm. No, and and I and I said in my introduction to you that you know 85 percent of the T Rowe Price funds. You've looked back at the last 20 years over five- and ten-year rolling periods um, have actually outperformed their benchmarks, mm-hmm. right? And 100% yeah. of our asset allocation funds. Okay. Our target date funds, retirement date funds. Right. So you can do it. You can do it w- well. The, the issue becomes what are investor preferences, and will every investor in the world decide to invest passively? And if we're the last active manager standing, we will thrive. <laughs> we won't be the last one standing. There'll be others. But it's, um, our, our game will be easier as more right. and more money flows passively. So let me go back to the 85% of your funds outperforming their benchmark. Um, can, you, can you pick those ahead of time? Of course, I'm thinking with, you know, with my luck, I'll be in the 15% that didn't. Mm-hmm. But are there determining factors that, that you can actually spot as an investor investing in a fund that you can tell, you know, this fund is probably going to do pretty well over the long term? Yeah, I, I think if it, it's... It's hard to identify the 15 that won't. Right. <laughs> and I, I think looking at the 85 that did, 85% that did, um, in advance, it's hard to do that. And so there's a probabilistic assessment you have to make. Are you willing to take that chance? Right. That you'll be in the 85, not the 15. Uh, you, you know, I think 85% odds are pretty good odds. If you think of 
the odds of investing in anything generally or the right. odds of uh, playing baseball or kicking field goals or anything mm -hmm. else. So 85% probability is, are pretty good odds. Um, and we think we, we think we have a culture and an organization in place to perpetuate that. But there, there are no guarantees. Right. So the, the, you know, the major argument the, for the advocates of passive investing is that, number one, they're very tax efficient because you're investing in an index which isn't being actively managed. Um, and, and also that the, the fees are so low that it's, it, it is such a high bar for active investors to surpass that. You know, I mean, what's your response to that? Mm -hmm. Well, our response is look at, look at our company and look at our data. Right, yep. And again, there, there are no guarantees prospectively, but the opportunity to earn a higher return mm -hmm. than an index, if realized, can have a very, really positive effect on the, on the investor's fortunes. Yep. Um, and even if it's a 50 basis points or a percent a year over a long period of time, uh, that can really be of great benefit to the investor. And that's really the case we make to our clients and customers. Right. And, and the, but you think there, there can be a role for passive investing for oh, investors? Well, so ab what is absolutely. it? What, what's, what's the, I mean, where would you assign that role? And we are not religious on this debate. Mm -hmm. We have a, a passive fund business at T. Price. It's a small part of our business right. relative to our active business. Mm -hmm. But we offer index fund products right. for defined contribution investors and others. Um, and so it's really a matter of the individual investor's preference. And what does he or she want? Mm -hmm. And is he or she content with uh, an index return? And that's fine. Um, the individual investor in that case might, might not want to look at funds and might not want to know who manages the fund and how's the fund done in up and down markets. And some investors would just as soon make that easy decision. And, and that's fine. And, and, and we can do that for people. Mm -hmm. um, there are many other investors who want to do better. And we really cater to that marketplace. I last interviewed you in December of 2013. And at that time, um, you were asking the question, what if nothing is cheap? Well, three years later, things, nothing is really cheap as far as if you look at the markets. The markets are much higher than they were back then. So what's your response to that? What do you do if nothing is cheap? If nothing is cheap, uh, you, can't be, um, you can't be wholly opposed to holding cash or very short duration fixed income securities. Um, you know, there, there was interest rate risk at the long end of the fixed income market, but in the very short term, uh, maturity range, you can invest very safely and defensively there. And speaking of, of not being cheap, the equity income fund, one of the things that you traditionally look for were undervalued dividend payers. Is there any such animal out there now, an undervalued dividend payer? Yeah, I, I think it's, um, it's a little harder this year than it's been over the last couple of years because there has been a big move to seek out income. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and you've seen it in the fixed income market, but you've also seen it in the equity market where um, high yielding stocks ha have been in great demand. And so I think it's a little bit tougher for my colleague, John Lenahan, who manages the equity income fund now. Mm -hmm. But there are, there are interesting companies out there selling at attractive levels of valuation. Um, you know, Total and Chevron, two high yielding energy stocks, very high quality. Um, you can construct a portfolio with Merck and UPS and companies of that ilk yielding 3 to 3.2 percent, uh, much higher than the yield you get on a 10-year treasury. Right. Um, so there are still pockets of opportunity, but I, I think the market overall is more extended than it was at our last conversation a couple of years ago. And so that would argue for a bit more caution going forward. Right. Final question. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. What should we all own something of. Well, we just talked about how hard that is. Yes, uh, we certainly did. <laughs> and I, I'm going to mention two because I want to diversify. <laughs> and I, I'd mention um, two companies, um, uh, both, uh, both investments at T. Rowe Price. 
uh, Bristol Myers Squibb, mm -hmm. um, a leading company on the in terms of introducing new immunotherapy strategies battling different types of cancer. I have firsthand knowledge that their products work, mm -hmm. um, and the company sells at a reasonably attractive level of valuation. They had a little earnings miss a couple of months ago, and um, but the company long term is going to do great, and in 20 years they'll be curing more people than they cure today. The second is Walt Disney. Uh huh. Oh, okay. Uh, a company I've had an investment in for a long, long period of time, and in 20 or 25 years. Uh, we will all be taking our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren or whatever to Disney World. Uh, the daily pass at Disney World will probably, I don't even know what it's going to cost in 25 years. Right. But it's a company with irreplaceable assets, a unique position, huge moats around its business, and is a long-term winner, winner in almost any any dimension. All right. So two win investments. What a bonus from there you go. Brian Rogers. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your lessons learned over a Wonderful 35-year career. Consuelo, my pleasure. Thank you. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is add humility to the qualities you look for in a money manager and his or her firm. Investing is a humbling profession. Even the top practitioners make mistakes or can be upended by the markets. You want managers who recognize the risks, are able to minimize them, and acknowledge errors when made. I hope you can tune in next week. We're going to change course and focus on strategies to create income in retirement. Two retirement planning experts will share some overlooked strategies. To hear more of our interview with Brian Rogers about how he made the decision to scale back at T. Rowe Price and take on some other challenges that interest him, click on the extra feature on our website, wealthtrack.com. Also, let us know what you think of what we're doing by contacting us on Facebook or Twitter. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective, Rosalind P. Walter, and the Fairholme Foundation.